Aussie music is something to be proud of. Wear it like a badge. Because it's Australian bands and artists that are the influences of so many other musicians the world over. So at Triple M, we're proud to be able to showcase the power of the Aussie music scene. Paying both homage to the greats that have stood the test of time, right alongside the current, the emerging, the future influences. The ones that will be next to make their mark on the global music scene. If it's Aussie and it rocks, it's right here. This is Triple M's Homegrown with Matty O. Yes, right around the country on the Triple M Network and on the Listener app, we welcome another edition of Industry Icons. We've had the one and only Matt Kadinsky, Russell Thomas, and now we've got a man who's literally done it all, from promoting A&R management, a wealth of experience across 30 years, and he's chatting to some of the biggest names now in his own podcast that will feature the likes of Matt Kadinsky. Needs no introduction, he's given us... Mushroom from the Skyhooks to Ed Sheeran. Eleven Music's John Watson, who puts Silverchair on the map. Now, of course, works alongside Jimmy Barnes and Cole Chisel, and of course, Unified Music's group, Jad and Comerford, who gave us a wealth of experience and the new names coming through in the business, like Johan Brunard. Getting their stories and taking you behind the songs and artists you love. Uh, lucky enough to have worked with this man before as I welcome the one and only Michael Parisi to Triple M's Home. Good to you, see you. So man. well prepared. Oh, that was mate. a great intro. Well, you're well prepared. Just, uh, of course, we're here talking about your brand of new course. podcast, uh, Vinyl Tap. How have you found it, man? Like, this is kind of a different avenue. Being for you. on the other side of the fence. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I mean, I, um, I thought to myself, it was about, it was actually born um, during COVID. And I thought, I want to do something, um, you know, I'm going to leave a legacy of sorts, I think. Yeah. And um, I just thought, you know what? I enjoy listening to podcasts. Why don't I do my own? Yeah. And I thought, how do I launch it? And I thought, let me talk to the people that, I kind of respect and admire first and foremost and then branch it out from there. So series one is about the movers and shakers who have been around for a while and have done things on their own terms. And then I'll go into series two will be artists. Series three will be producers and songwriters. So I'll just, I'll give you a, a wide array of talent or people who've been in the industry and have done things yeah. and have made an impact on our scene. Yeah. And I feel like, um, are you finding that when you're interviewing these people who you've known for years, you know, mm. a lot of the people that you're speaking to, you're learning new things about them that you didn't know before? 100%. And that was a whole idea. I thought I'm, I learn every day. I mean, um, I've been around for 30 years, but it's amazing how much more you can learn about this industry. Yeah. It's forever changing, as you know. Yeah. So I, you know, I love talking to younger people who give me, inspire me actually yeah. every day, yeah. just learning about, you know, new technology, new platforms. You know, this business has changed dramatically since, you know, I first started in it when it was about, all I had was a rotary phone and a Teledex, you know, and then, you know, here we are like 30 years later and it's all about social media. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, it yeah, really yeah. is. I was thinking, man, uh, we should give the people a bit of a backstory into your career and how you started. Yeah, and- I, yeah I started years ago. I um, My first job was promotions at Warner's, at Warner Brothers. And from there, I went into marketing uh, and fell into A&R, which is artisan repertoire, which means the person in the company that signs signs musicians or signs artists. Yeah. And uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, work with some incredible artists over the years. In promotions, I mean, I, I one of my first acts that I worked with was Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. We're going to touch on some of those acts yeah, a little will. bit later. Yeah. 
yeah. there are. But, but it's, yeah, it's been a rewarding, you know, 30 years, I guess. Just over 30 years, actually. Um, getting to work with, you know, artists you love and getting to work in the music industry. Waking mm. up in the morning and doing something you love, you know, yeah. it's not, you know, it's, it's not a frequent, it's, it's not one of those things that, you know, a lot of people can actually, um, you know, say that they, um, you know, enjoy their job that is. Yeah. You know, uh, but yeah, I've, I've been blessed and very fortunate. Right, right place, right time. Yeah, most man. of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were saying like the industry's changed so much. And what was it like coming into the music industry, like as a young, uh, like excitable music fan and working at a record label, I guess, and it's it's a lot different now. Like there were huge budgets for these Ma- albums. Yeah, massive and- budgets. But also you got to remember at the time when I started signing artists, um, there was no internet you know, and you know, there was no mobile phone for that matter. Yeah. So the only way you could uh, work out what you wanted to sign was to go out to the pubs and clubs of Australia, yeah. not just Melbourne, yeah. right around the country to look for talent. And so, you know, it's changed dramatically. And now, you know, you, you know, you can find talent online and there are, you know, there are record labels who have teams of people just trawling the internet mm. looking for, you know, artists, you know, who have got big followings and, yeah. you know, and it's it, the way people are signed has changed dramatically. Yeah. But uh, talking about budgets, yeah, budgets have changed too because these days technologies are such that anyone can make a record. Mm. You know, a lot of records are made in bedrooms, you know, yeah. these days. Yeah. In Back in my day when we started in the business, it was all going to a recording studio, which weren't cheap. Yeah. So budgets could have been, I mean, you know, your first album could have been anywhere up from, you know, hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These days, you can make a record for twenty five, thirty grand if you got the right song. Mm. You, don't, you don't need the amount of technology we used to have or would still have. Yeah. floating around back then. You know, I'm interested to pick your brain on this. Like, I feel like when you would sign a band, um, you know, like maybe twenty or thirty years ago, they had to really prove themselves live. Like Macadinsky was 100%. big on that too. And now it's kind of like live is maybe the last thing you might see with an artist. And that's is, where is that a good I, thing or a bad thing? It's a, I don't think it's a great thing. That, that's where I had this argument with someone. It wasn't an argument. It was a healthy debate uh, a few weeks ago at Big Sound and they were it was someone from Sounds Australia and they were saying that these days you don't need to have a live show to get mm. noticed and I beg to differ because you know if you can't perform in front of an audience and turn that audience on then what have you got Yeah, you know, because you're only as good as your last hit at that point and yeah. it's not about hits anymore it's about having compelling content and the big piece of the jigsaw you know uh, puzzle for me is having a compelling live show if you haven't got a compelling live show then what have you got Yeah, because how do you build an audience without a, without a show in- so live is super super crucial to me always has been always will be here's the other twist what's the solution to touring and doing all that has never been harder with expenses and people sure. not buying pre-sale tickets anymore what's like the middle ground there because I, I actually don't know it's really hard because it's difficult you know I wish I had all the answers for you Matt but you know what I say to my artists is like it's your job to build an audience no matter how mm. you know if that's playing 50 shitty acoustic gigs on, on a Tuesday night in Wesleyanne in Northcote then so be it you know you've got to go out there and find an audience and you know it's blood sweat and tears it literally is yeah. you know it's not for the faint hearted and it's all about work ethic too I mean the artists I, I tend to sort of gravitate to are the artists that have a vision for themselves yeah. and want to work hard yeah. if you haven't got that work ethic then you're in the wrong business I think that's it I think there are a lot of uh, artists out there that are looking for artists from representation but they don't know how to find it what what tips do you have for a young band wanting to find someone like you or, or a Jadon or a Matt to get on their radar again be out there make yourself noticed by doing shows and, and, and you know and, and rising above the noise you know like is there a point of difference I mean I would I would gravitate to an act that does 100 shows a year you know because yeah. you know they're going to be great you know um, how do you get noticed there's luck involved there's the power of the song which I still find very very important songs are crucial you know I don't care what anyone says yes you can have real time testing with all your socials and stuff but ultimately what it boils down to for me is again back to the compelling content thing yeah. a song you cannot beat a great song mm. no matter what genre whether you're Marilyn Manson or Celine Dion or Vance Joy you need to have that one song 
song that's going to capture people's imagination. That's still yeah. very central to the a you know, theme as such, you know? Yeah. You'd know this being an artist manager. How are you finding like the state of the industry at the moment as far as artists having to look after this whole social media beast that wasn't there when we started and when we were working yeah. with you, that didn't exist and just mental health burnout, like how? Look, it's challenging, but you know what? It always has been challenging. You know, breaking an Australian artist was, you know, it was tough 20 years ago. It was tough 15 years ago. It was tough 10 years ago. It's always going to be tough. There's always challenges. Back in my day, you know, and dare I, dare I say this, but it took me, you know, like three years to get regurgitated played on Triple M. You know, it wasn't until they won five ARI awards that they were taken seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a challenge back then. You always got to find a way around challenges. And, and if technology is a challenge, you got to work around it. You know, if exactly. Spotify is now, you know, one of the biggest gatekeepers, you got to find a way to, to get noticed, you know. And, you know, and, and to your point about mental health, that's always been there too. It's just that in, in our day or back in, back in the day. No one talked about it. No one talked yeah, about it. It was swept yeah. under the carpet. You know, yeah. everyone suffered from it, you know, all through, all through my career, most of my artists had some kind of mental health issue challenge. Mm. You, know, you know, they just didn't want to talk about it because they, it was frowned upon. Yeah. It was probably seen as a sign of weakness. Yeah. Whereas these days we have a lot more avenues, you know, uh, to talk about it. Yeah. You know, a, a, a more of a chance to talk about it and it's taken a lot more seriously. Yeah. But, you know, there's certain particular artists on my roster now who, who have their days where, mm. you know, you've got to literally, you know, cuddle them and talk them off the ledge, so yeah. to speak, you know, without sounding too dramatic. No, no, totally. And weird, isn't it? Because like you, for an artist, I feel to be the best artist, they need to do it full time. But like, it's hard, like financially at the moment it's where you've got to, got to work and do it at the same time. Right? You know, a lot of the artists uh, who I sign as developing artists have, have jobs, mm. you know, so they, they, and what they do is they, they pull their resources together and put the money in yeah. from their day jobs in order to, you know, catapult their career. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I, again, it's, as you said earlier, it's, it's not cheap to have a career, you know, mm. in this country, you know, primarily because of tyranny of distance. We are such a big yeah, country yeah, and yeah. getting around this country, unless you want to, you know, jump in a van and do it the old school way, like British India was, yeah, used yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah, nothing you know, wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at <laughs> yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. So, but you've got to, you've got to have that kind of, you've got to have that drive yeah. to, 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 to succeed. Absolutely. It's not an easy job. Well, know? I think like that's why it's cool that you're doing your podcast because a lot of the people you're speaking to kind of grew up doing it the hard way, like Johan, Jadon, and, uh, you know, even Matt, you know, Matt Kadinsky's still out at the tote on Tuesday night going and seeing gigs. So yeah, putting this together is, you know, it's almost like a, a toolkit for an upcoming artist. 100%, you know, yeah. and then, I mean, with the podcast, what I'm trying to get across to people is the, now normally people see the tip of the iceberg. They don't see the nine tenths underneath the iceberg. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the process that makes artists happen. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of work and it takes, it takes years to break an act, you mm. know, and, you know, back in my time when big acts like Midnight Oil and, you know, and Chisel and, you know, In Excess, it took them three or four albums to get going. Even Hunters and Collectors, I was talking to my good friend Barry Palmer, who was a guitarist in that band. Of course. They didn't hit pay dirt till, you know, album three. So it's kind of, it needs to kind of go back to that, you know, as romantic as that sounds, it needs to go back to that yeah. proper artist development. Yeah. You know, build a proper foundation yeah. for yourself. And, and that comes you know, that comes with, you know, years of touring and years of releasing. Mm. You know? And how much, how much better are you for it in the long run when you do have your time and you've done oh. that four or five years of regional touring, for you're, example? You're going to be 100 times better off than, than the next band, the next, you know, competitor, so to speak. Yeah. You know, having, laying down that foundation and as, as I said, building an audience is crucial. Yeah. Without an audience, I mean, they're your bread and butter. Exactly. You know, once you've established an audience, you can sell merchandising to them, you can sell concert tickets to them, you can sell anything to yeah, them, yeah, yeah. you know, but it's it's maintaining that audience, making them feel special, making them feel like they're part of the gang. Yeah. That's what it's about. And it doesn't matter what genre either. It doesn't have to be, you know, it's exactly, rock. Yeah. It's, it's every genre, whether it's, you know, females who want to be in the in pop, you know, guys who want to rock out, you know, the, you know, the EDM world. Yeah. You know, you're buying into a brand, you know, exactly. really, right? Yeah. Now, I want to play a little bit of a game with you. This is called... Okay. 
So this is called Memory Lane. Now, you've had a wealth of experience across the industry. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play a band, mm-hmm. and I want you to tell me what the first thing is that comes to mind when I play right. Okay? Yep. This is... Uh... Muse, I, I believe you might have some experience. Or the, What's the connection there? Okay, so I was the first person in the world to sign Muse to my label, to a label, which which was my label, Sputnik Records, back in 1999. um, Their English lawyer happened to join Mushroom Records in Australia on the same day that I started my label with Mushroom. No way. Absolutely. And he gave me, and he slipped me this CD. Back in those days, you got CDs, and before that, cassettes, mind you. Yeah. A CD of of the first EP, Muscle Museum. And he slid it to me and he said, here's a band I represented in, in, in the UK before I left to come here. Let me know what you think. Anyway, I played it. And I went, this is amazing. Yeah. And I remember ringing Corda Marshall, who was the head of Mushroom UK. Mm. And I said, Corda, you know, you've got this band sitting on your doorstep yeah, yeah, yeah. called Muse. Why haven't you signed them? They're incredible. This record is incredible. And yeah. I imagine they're going to be great live. And he said, oh, look, they remind me of Radiohead with loud guitars. And I said, and the problem is. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, why don't you sign it and test it down there? You know, because you've got Triple J. We haven't got a Triple J up. You know, so, yeah. so I did. I signed their first EP and their first album to my label. And lo and behold, oh, my Triple God. J embraced it. And it took off and set the tone for the band internationally. Next thing you know, they're signed to Madonna's label Maverick in the US. Yeah. Then they signed to Corda through Mushroom UK. Yeah. The rest is history, but I was the one who sort of like signed them first. There was so before, much before no music, one, hey? Before no one knew about them. That's crazy. I mean, so what were they like when you kind of first met oh, them? They were and great. You I, mean, I, I mean, they were young and um, we brought them out to do promo and a few shows. They actually supported Motor Race at the Evelyn Hotel was their first ever show in Australia. No Absolutely. way. Which is, holds what, like maybe two, three hundred? Three hundred people tops and it was rammed that night because Motor Race were doing a launch and, yeah. and we thought we'd bring Muse along for the ride you know as their support no way and you know Motor Race were a pretty good band back then but then you had Muse support them and then they were like Uh-oh. I remember seeing Damo and Patch from Motor Race looking at me going <laughs> how do we follow that <laughs> yeah. oh my god oh, and, and it was the Evelyn I mean they, and they, they looked like they were, they were playing a stadium they were that, they were that tight that yeah. good and that bombastic and I thought it's destined for a stadium yeah. you just knew it back then and then what like maybe five six years and later Five years later, they would, you know, they were just like headlining Big Day Out and just doing, you know, incredible stuff internationally. But you know, yeah. the guy who managed them, Safter, was very clever in doing separate deals in separate territories. Yeah, you know, and so he had like I think he had ten separate deals. Right, but it worked for him absolutely because everyone's going to work harder for absolutely. them in their own territory rather than just a big yeah. Deal. And you know, and you know, they didn't want Australia to show them up. So Corder, you know, who ran Mushroom UK, yeah. then got serious about it and goes, "I can't let Mushroom Australia show me up." So yeah. he spent money on them, and, and then he signed. And then we eventually, when Maverick, you know, kind of like lost interest, because America's a tough market, yeah. we signed them for the world. Mushroom signed them for the entire world. Wow. And then they got really big. Oh, my God. Yeah, the rest it was great. History. That's news. so cool, love, man. Love, love those that, guys. Wow, that's incredible. Next band. What comes to mind when I play the Red Hot Chili Peppers? My first ever promo job was looking after the Chili Peppers on the Blood uh, Sugar Sex Magic Tour in, God, when was that? 90, Early 90s. 92, 93 from memory. And I was tasked with the job of looking after uh, Anthony, the singer. Yeah. And I remember, <laughs> I'm not sure how much I can say here without no, being no, sued. Say it all. But I remember Lindy Getz, their manager, you know, said to me, oh, you're in charge of Anthony. He said, he's going to charm you within 10 minutes and you're gonna, he's going to get whatever he wants from you. Yeah. And I went, no, 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 I'm a pro. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tough. I, you know, 
Yeah. Anyway, cut a long story short, he got whatever he wanted. <laughs> yeah. He charmed the bloody pants off me and said, yeah. whatever he asked for, I, ran, I went and got. And you can imagine what the shopping list was like back then. I got told off. Oh. For, I got told off from my boss. They knew what was going on, but we had a great time nonetheless. And what and, were they like? Like, like they seemed like were they yeah, down to earth? Were they like fleas yeah. always seemed pretty. I mean, flea flea was a nutcase. Um, yeah. Chad was the was the friendliest yeah. and the most approachable. Anthony was off the pixies because he was going through a hard time, and it's well documented in his book what he yeah, went yeah, through. Yeah. But they were quite charming, and they were good to hang out with, and I just wanted to hang, you yeah, know, and talk music and party. What kind of venues were and they party. playing in Australia at that time? At that time, it was Festival Hall, okay, Horton right. Pavilion, yeah, that okay. size, and, yeah. and Blood Sugar had was just catching on into the mainstream. So it was just pre, you know, pre before they exploded, and then they obviously came back, and every show got bigger and bigger yeah, and bigger, yeah, yeah. culminating in Big Day Out, headlining the Big Day Out um, years later. But they were they were a great bunch of guys, you know. Um, so very LA, about, very LA. So talk to me about what that was like, like day to day. Was it just like someone's gone missing, or was it all kind of pretty oh, contained? A or? lot of Where's Anthony? Uh, oh, Chad's with three girls in the spa. Get him out. He's got a radio <laughs> interview in ten minutes. You know, it was my role to like. It was hurting cats. You know, it really was. <laughs> and how old were you then? Oh, I was I was in my early twenties. You know, and just like you know, being put in charge in in, in who, you know a band that became one of the biggest in the world. Literally hurting cats. It was it was a chore, but it was enjoyable because yeah. I was a massive fan of the band. Yeah. Massive fan of that record in particular. So it was kind of like it was surreal. And the crowds would have been wild too. And crazy, I imagine like crazy after the gigs is when it would have got the most uh, loose. Oh well, yeah, uh, it got really loose. I mean, you know, at one point we lost Chad. Um, I found him eventually at the Hilton <laughs> Hotel in Melbourne. It's like almost famous, man. Oh, dude, I was like, I literally, I, okay, where's okay? I've lost Flea. Uh, <laughs> okay, got Flea. Where's Anthony? I've lost. It was crazy. Yeah, you know? right, so, man. Hurting cats, as as I said. But you know, nonetheless, you know, they were a fun, great group of guys. You yeah. know, um, great musicians and just nice people deep down. Nice. Even through their, you know, with with their demons and their various traumas, yeah, they still they still found time to make you feel welcome. Particularly yeah, nice. fans, they love their fans. Nice, man. you know. So if you approach them on the street, they're walking down the street. You know, yeah. they they happily have a conversation. In fact, I took them to Chasers one night where I used to DJ. It was, it was a, a night called Hard and Fast. Here we go every Wednesday night. How appropriate. Yeah, and um, that was a long night. They decided to hang in the stairwell <laughs> of the club for hours, and they brought the party to them. Yeah, and so it was crazy. It was yeah, like, what man. are they doing? You know, they wanted to party in their own space and the only space they could find without being hassled was a stairwell. <laughs> and, and so oh, my job was to bring people through and say hello and we sat there with canisters of illusions and, you know, I'd, I'd bring 20 drinks at a time and it, yeah. it was just hilarious. It would have made the next tour seem quite tame. Do you, very, remember, what, do you remember what the next tour was? Very tame. Very tame. Very, very tame compared to that first one because you've got to remember they were still, Anthony was still coming off his various um, habits, that, shall I say. Yeah, of course. And so the, the next time they came, it was a whole different story because yeah. a lot, they, the boys had cleaned up. Yeah. The only one who was who was a bit naughty, um, but not in in a in a in a bad way, was Chad. He could go all night. He was the kind of guy who'd go, "Let's go out," mm. you know. And then three days later, you get home. Okay, gotcha. That's funny, man. We we talked on this band a little bit earlier. My Mighty Gurge, man. Five hours. I, Arias, I should say. I had yeah. Kwani not too long ago. How he was he? He didn't go. No. Oh, yeah. well, no, no, no. Tell a lie. He did go. He performed a song. The, the, the deal was this. He said, I don't want to go to the Arias. And we said, well, look, you're up for seven seven awards. You've got a performance. And and we and we convinced him to do the performance. And then we had a car pick him up straight after the performance and take him straight back to the airport. And the other two stayed. Because Kwan was anti-establishment and anti-show business, anti-everything. He was a teetotaler and still is. 
Mm. Um, and he just didn't like the limelight whatsoever. So getting him there to perform in the first place was so difficult, but getting him to stay was impossible. That's a, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, like, just anti-establishment. They didn't like what when I say they, Quan, yeah. didn't like the idea of being adored as much as he liked success. So it was yeah, a it was a that's, real that's weird, really... you know, juxtaposition. You know, one minute you do want success, the next minute you you know you don't want to be at the Arias. And it reminded me of a time when they scored. They were signed to Reprise Records in America, mm. and they scored the Green Day. National American Green Day tour as main support and Quan knocked it back. They would have been gone for six months. It would have broken them in America because everyone in America was excited about that you know, the band. So and, this is after the release of Unit? No, this or is before? no, this is before. This is the first record two playing. And everyone around the world got excited about the band. I had Court of Marshall from Mushroom trying to sign them. I had Reprise Warner Brothers Atlantic trying to sign them. We end up signing to Warner's. Yeah. Reprise. Then Rob Cavallo, um, a good friend of mine who was Green Day's producer and who also head of AR for Warner Brothers. Brothers, signed them to, to, to Warner Brothers and then got them the Green Day Dookie Tour of America, six months tour, main support. And they knocked it, well, Quan knocked it back because he had a two week at a time tour policy. And I remember when he said that in front of the, the, the label, the record label in America, and we're at a dinner in, at South by Southwest in America in Austin. And I went white, I think, you know, and I've got dark skin. <sighs> I went, I, I just said, what are you doing? You know, you're walking away from what could be the biggest opportunity of your life to break America with the biggest band of the time. Because Green Day were massive at that, at that point with Dookie. And so we knocked back that tour. So nonetheless, I still love that band. Absolutely. They're you know, a national they, treasure, but. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, they walked away from so many opportunities because Juan's, not inability, I think that's too harsh a word, just his 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 general attitude towards success and what it meant to him. Yeah. It was very different to how I measured success and yeah, how the I record label measures success. Yeah, yeah, it's weird because when you're kind of A&Ring, you want the best. Of course you, you know, do. you want every opportunity taken. And mm. yeah, it's it must be weird when the artists have different opinions because you're not trying to convince them. Well, you know, it was interesting because it felt like self-sabotage because when I tried to sign the band, one of the things that they were banging on about to me was like, what are you going to do for us overseas? So I kept my end of the bargain. I got them a record deal, you know. Mm. I got them, you know, through my contacts and hard work, a massive tour with Green Day. And they said no. Yeah. You know, and it, you know how deflating that is to an A and R person. Mm. You put your you put your you know your bees on the line, mm. and to have a, an, an act you know who you work so hard for turn around and go no is demoralising. Yeah. And, and and then try and explain that to your bosses at the time. You know, like you know, it's my job to get them you know to America. It's my job to make them sell records. Yeah. And when that's taken away from you by the artists themselves, it was like whoa, it's a slap in the face. Yeah. But as I said, nonetheless, I still love that band. Yeah. They made incredible records. They're still a great live act. They're yeah. still touring now. Yeah, 25 years a unit. 25 yeah, years a unit. It's amazing. Sold out to us. So. It's amazing. Yeah, man. What about uh, these guys? The Eskies. Love Eskimo still, Joe. Speaking of still touring, still, still touring, going and it's great. That, yeah, what's interesting is all the acts that I've been involved in over the years are still touring. Yeah. you know the, these guys and Mo- Motor Racers did a tour recently. to George Eskimo Joe were um, one of those acts that you know I had my they're already signed and I had my eye on them. Me and Kath Harrity, my A and R girl at Mushroom at the time, yeah, we had our eye on them for a long time. But they were signed to Modular, yeah. Steve Pavlovic's label. And when I when I discovered they had a falling out, we were in there like Flynn, you know, and um, me and Kath went about you know 
wining and dining them and convincing them that, that we're the right label for them. Yeah. And when I'd heard Black Viennol's Red Wine, the demo, I thought, oh my God, this is going to be huge. It's a smash. It's an absolute smash. And, you know, yeah, it was a smash. Yeah. You know, and another band who, you know, through sheer hard work, you know, had um, a lot going on, you know, even internationally, they kind of cocked up international too, but that's another story, another story. But mm. they're one of those bands that I, I'm very fond of because they always, you know, nothing was a chore for them. They, yeah. they, they, they worked hard. Um, they wrote incredible songs and still do. Yeah. You know, class act. Now, I've got to ask you something about... A story maybe involving the Rolling Stones... So what's going on with the Stones okay. and Ray? Is there a story here? Yeah, there's yeah, the I've constant heard, I've, I've heard this on the Grapevine. Okay, on the Grapevine. Okay. So the constant theme here is a game of pool. And I, and I don't know why, you know, cuz I'm a, I'm actually a pretty good pool player if I say so myself. Yeah. But I um I was invited to the Voodoo Lounge, which was the backstage area of yeah. the Stones um tour around the world actually, but they played Sydney Football Stadium and I was invited by Paul Dainty the promoter. Mm. It was try it was courting me at the time to come and work for his label through Sony. And he got I got picked up in a in a special car, whisked to the backstage area of um, Sydney Football Stadium, and whisked into this massive lounge. It was like a they built a cocktail bar, yeah. you know, behind the Sydney <laughs> yeah, Football yeah. Stadium, pool tables, the works. And I got thrust in here, and there was all these people in there. And I started playing pool. Next thing you know, Ron Wood joins in, and then Keith walks in, necking a bottle of red wine, and I want to play pool too. So all of a sudden, here I am in the days where there was no cameras on phones. <laughs> Right, and here I am playing pool and drinking red wine and cocktails with with the Stones. Unbelievable! But you know what? It didn't dawn on me till after they left. The you know, oh my god, I just played pool with the Rolling Stones. Yeah, it would have been like a drink. Like, yeah, but at the yeah. time it was like I was just playing pool with a bunch of dare I say this bunch of drunks from you know from yeah. the pub. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, yeah. After after the game, it was like Robert Rigby, who I was working with at the time, said, "You just play pool with the Rolling Stones." I said, "Yeah, I know, but I've got nothing to prove." <laughs> No that's, phones in those days, Matt. That's the no worst. No phones. That's the worst. And then years later, the same thing happened again. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> a couple of years later, I was um, a good friend of mine, Vivian Lees, who was one of the owners of Big Day Out, invited yeah. me backstage, and you know, and uh, he said, "Hey, can you play pool?" And I said, "Yeah, I can really well." He goes, "Go over there." And so he whisked me to this back, this backstage area, and there's you know, you know, Rage Against the Machine, the entire band playing pool and playing, you know, playing music and yeah. had their own little cocktail bar. So all of a sudden, I'm backstage with Rage Against the Machine, who I was who were about to go on stage, you know. In, in two hours' time, yeah. that's when they filmed their video for Bulls on Parade. Right. So, so that was two thousand and. Oh no, I'm trying to remember no, no, the actual like year. 90, no, it would have been late nineties. Late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. They filmed Bulls on Parade. Their actual um, official video for that song was shot at Sydney Big Day Out. Right. So here I am playing, and for some reason they took a, a, a liking to me. They said, "You want to come side of stage for the show? We're going to film it." And I went, "Sure." So all of a sudden, I'm one of only ten people on the side of stage watching nice. them shoot this video for Bulls on Parade. Nice. And I've never felt more scared in my life because I thought the stage was going to go down because it was when they played Killing in the Name of I looked out and the entire crowd and it was probably 45 50,000 people were jumping up and down and you could feel it on the stage and I thought the stage was going to crumble the the the, um, the the lighting tower and the front of house tower was sh- physically literally shaking in front of me. We thought that was going to go too. Oh my I've never God. seen anything quite like it. But if <laughs> yeah. you watch that video for Bulls on Parade, yeah. you'll see how how crazy and big the crowd was and how crazy it was up on stage. You, you could see the stage bending Whoa, as, as they were jumping. It was craziness. That's so cool. But you, lovely, lovely guys. You know, Tom Morello was a real gentleman, and you know, yeah. would you like to drink? And he asked me what I did, and I was like, "What's going on here?" You know, they they're nice. You need to start taking a pool cue around. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this. Let's play one more game. Okay. This is cool. On Triple M's homegrown with Matteo, it's time for. Uh oh. 
It's Right Party or Dinner. Now, I played this game with the acts that come in. It's called Right Party Dinner, but maybe I'm going to change this for you. It's going right. to be Manage Party Dinner. So I'm going to give you three acts. Yeah. You can manage one, you party with the next, and the third you take home to dinner. So I'm going to give you three acts. You can either manage them, party with them, or take them home acts to dinner. Acts that I've worked with? No, no, these are random acts. Oh, random. random? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your three acts to choose from us. Act one, Aerosmith. Aerosmith. Act two. Act two, Bruce. And third. So you can manage one, you can party with one, and third you take home for dinner. I would definitely party with Oasis. Although it would have been Aerosmith in their heyday in the 70s when they were were ratbags. But definitely the the Gallagher brothers in their heyday to party with. Absolutely. That would have been like off the hook. Dinner? Dinner, I'd have to say... Oh, God, Bruce. Oh, I'd manage Bruce, actually. Yeah, you'd manage Bruce. I'd manage Bruce. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Bruce is the ultimate. I mean, look look at him. Mid-70s, still playing three and a half, four-hour shows. Working hard. like Working yeah. hard. You know, like everything he puts out is quality class. You know, just, just one of those acts that has, you know, stood the test of time. Yeah. Just a, just a great human being. I actually did meet him briefly with um, when Dan Sultan um, supported him. Nice. On his, on his That's first tour. You play tour. Hanging Rock? Yeah, this was the tour before Hanging Rock when he came out and did a couple of Amy's. Oh, nice. And uh, Matt, uh, Dan Sultan was signed to, um, or still is signed to Liberation, Gadinsky's label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I met him briefly backstage. And just like one of those guys, you just, nothing phases him. Everyone's on the same level. He doesn't like talk down to people. He would have been a dream to manage yeah. I'm sure it would have had its challenges because yeah. Bruce likes what you know doing four hour gigs yeah. every night yeah, yeah, yeah. but management definitely Bruce partying definitely Oasis and then dinner and then dinner with dinner with Aerosmith in the 70s would have started off as a nice quiet dinner but it would have ended up in <laughs> yeah, complete debauchery <laughs> complete debauchery you know the, the, they used to call them the toxic twins yeah right absolutely hey Michael um, it's been so much fun man congratulations thanks, on man. the podcast uh, thanks for so having much me. stories and that's what I love about listening to all these you're getting an insight that you didn't know about thanks man and I really appreciate it yeah yeah it's been a pleasure me. and you can come back whenever you want thanks buddy take awesome. care thank you